What's up, disciples? It's Zach Zinder with Red Letter Disciple. In a couple minutes, my co-host, Pastor Chris Johnson. He's also my friend. He's going to be joining us on the show. And we have a mission at Red Letter Disciple to challenge you to be a greater disciple of Jesus. We believe the world needs to see a greater expression of who Jesus is. And you've got it inside of you. you got what it takes. So I hope our podcast today brings that out of you. I'm excited because Mark DeMoz is in the house today. Well, he's not technically. He's in his house, but he's you know talking to us. And all right, you can be in your house, wherever you're listening. How about that? Mark is a pastor. He's an author of many books, and he's the director of Mosaics Conferences. And Mark, I really think, is leading the way when it comes to helping individuals and churches live authentic, multi-ethnic relationships. We talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about disruption and what in our nation needs disruption when it comes to discipleship, how to help people discover their strengths. I really loved his conversation on that. And did you know that I was born in Arkansas? and Mark pastors in Arkansas. And so Chris thought, because I lived there all of one year of my life as a baby to one-year-old, that I could battle Mark in an Arkansas. Who knows more? We'll see who wins. Probably no. But anyway, we have a really great conversation. Today's episode is sponsored by Red Letter Living. We create resources to challenge people and to help churches challenge their people to be greater disciples of Jesus. And we've got a free one for you. You can get it at freeredlettergift.com. And here's what this resource is. It's, here's what we're calling it. The super simple, easily doable, five-step guide to growing your small groups. Healthy churches are marked by many characteristics One of the most common, though, you know it, come on, is if people are connecting in small groups. And yet many pastors aren't too happy with where their small group ministry is. We know that you can grow your small groups. In fact, we've helped get this more than a thousand churches do this. And so we know it's doable. I'm not saying it's like nothing, but I'm saying it's super simple and easily doable. Now, it's a little bit of work. But again, super simple, easily doable. So if you want that free, beautiful PDF, the super simple, easily doable five-step guide to grow your small groups, we're giving it to you for free at freeredlettergift.com. Hope it helps your church grow their small groups. And if there's anything more we can do at Red Letter Living to help you with that, you know where to find us. We are here for you. So, hey, today's episode is going to be fun. And they're always fun. If you like Red Letter Disciple and you haven't yet, why haven't you? Will you rate and review? That really helps spread the word. And will you also subscribe or follow on whatever platform so we can keep bringing this awesome content to you. Without further ado, Mark DeMoz, let's do this. Today, I always say this, it's going to be another great episode at Red Letter Disciple. We've got my friend Mark DeMoz coming to the Red Letter Disciple podcast. And Mm -hmm. Mark is the founding pastor of Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas, which is a multi-ethnic and and economically diverse church where significant percentages of black and white Americans together with men and women from, get this, Chris, more than 30 nations. I don't know if you know this, but (laughs) Mosaic is a piece of art that contains a lot of different pieces of art. I bet that's probably why they named it that. Perhaps. But these these 30 nations and these people walk, work, and worship God together as one. Mm. Uh, Mark's also the, uh, an author and head of the Mosaics conferences with national and regional conferences all around the USA, helping pastors and church leaders become more multi-ethnic, which I think is a really important conversation mm. to have. And that's what we're going to do today. So, Mark DeMoz, welcome to the Red Letter Disciple. It's great to have you today. Hey, Mark. Hey, Zach, Cam. Great to be with you all. Awesome. Hey, uh, Chris, I don't know if you know this, but Mark pastors a church in the city that I was born in. Wait, you were Little Rock. You were born in Little Rock, Arkansas? Yeah, baby. I did not know that. So tell the folks, Mark, what is Woo Pig Suey? 
Well, I'll this be glad to, but first of all, just a disclaimer, I am actually not from Arkansas, but I've lived here 30 years mm. and my kids, my grandkids, I'm going to live and die in Arkansas, but I'm actually <laughs> from the West Coast, San Francisco, born and bred oh. for about 10 years and then over to Scottsdale, Arizona that I nice. consider my hometown. Nice. But as I mentioned, 1993 got here to Little Rock. I also want to say I know Chris's name is Chris, not Cam. So <laughs> That's all right. Him. Cam's our producer. He's way more valuable. Nobody I ever know. Exactly. I was interacting with Cam earlier, so I messed that up, Chris. But yeah, <laughs> whoop pig suey. Look, I am certainly not an expert on the University of Arkansas, the Razorbacks, uh, but sometime in the past they got on this, and it's a it's basically a pig call. You know, when you're calling in the pigs mm. for the hogs to for the the feeding troughs. They, they say woo pig suey, and somehow it became uh, adopted by the state, by the uh, football team. And I'm told, I've read before, that it's like the number one most uh, annoying and the number one best uh, call chant in college football. So there I, you go. I don't know. I just wonder, yeah, either you love it or you hate it, I suppose. If you hear that for the first time, do you think to yourself, maybe we should go back to San Francisco? Oh, my <laughs> God. This is not the place for us. Hey, Chris, 30 years later, and I'm still, you know, I, I just, I can't believe I live in a state where the mascot is a pig. Yeah. But the fact is, I do. Yeah. And that's that's what it is. And actually, Arkansas is very competitive across the board in all yeah. their sports. And that's kind of a fun thing. And uh, I think our baseball team's ranked number two right now. And wow. and we're in the SEC, of course. There is yeah. no other, you know, division to be in. SEC is all about it. So, yeah. woo pig suey. We're making enemies and rivals right from the beginning. I kind of wonder, Chris is from the state of Iowa, and That's I don't know right. if you know this, Mark, but pigs, hogs outnumber people four to one in his state. I don't know, I don't know if that's true. That's why when you drive through Iowa, it, it, it always oh, okay. kind of stinks Here a we go. Bit, yeah, so. it's a glorious yeah, exactly. right next door. All right, yeah. I, I want to know how in the world San Fran to Scottsdale, but but yeah. then you landed in Little Rock of all places. Like, wh why? What, what? What was that all about? <laughs> Yeah, well, I had been uh, as uh, basically a college baseball player, played Division One baseball, too oh, slow wow. to get drafted, had nothing better to do, uh, raised Jesuit Catholic, but became a believer, follower of Christ uh, in my sophomore year. So at the end of my college uh, life and, and baseball career graduation, this church asked me to come be a youth pastor. That launched me into an 18-year career as a student ministry, 7th through 12th grade pastor. The final eight of those... Uh, is what brought me to Little Rock, 1993. I came to a church uh, at the time, 2,000 people. Eight years later, it was 5,000. My youth group, when I started, was about 150. Ended up being 600 kids. So just this wow. explosive season of growth in yeah. this church here in Little Rock. Uh, and again, I was there eight years. But towards the end of that, got a vision for the church that I planted here in the inner city called Mosaic. And, and so I've been at this now 22 years, all total 30 in Little Rock. Cool. Wow. I did a little digging and Chris and I had a little debate because your title at your church, you said you're, you know, it's founding pastor, but now on your website, it says directional leader. And we were going back and forth debating. I like, know what it means. Did but... you actually get demoted in yeah. as directional leader, like a parking lot attendant, or are you just kind of, I well, that, that, you know, in 30 years of knowing and understanding that title, I have never had that thought about directing traffic but that's a good one and it's i can totally see it. that's important if you don't have directional leaders in the parking lot it's chaos yeah no that's 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 so good well the church that i come to 1993 the lead pastor what a lot of people would call lead pastor today um was titled directional leader and they 
functioned in what's called team-based management. So rather than a senior pastor, kind of one person at the top, yeah. it was several people, in their case, three people, uh, uh, almost like the Trinity functioning in different roles and gifting, if you will, but acting as one. Mm. And, and so the, I, and I got into that model, built it out in my student ministries. And then of course, when I started this church built into the uh, DNA, uh, the structure of our church, team-based management. So essentially a directional leader is the vision person, right? That's look and feel. It's all about vision. Uh, where are we, where are we going? That's the gifting of the directional leader. Then we have a senior pastor, and the senior pastor is basically the shepherd, mm. right? That's the relational, the people, the problems at the relational level. And then, of course, we have an XP, an ex executive pastor, and that's the one who's doing forms, functions, operations, et cetera. So the three of us, along with our C, uh, CFO, we function as a team, yielding to one another in the strength of our gifting rather than kind of a top-down approach to, to leadership. So long way to say directional leader connotes the visionary of the church. So question, um, I think a lot of people are asking this, can you fire anybody at any time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have fired myself uh, on a couple of occasions, actually. <laughs> there you go. I, uh, but I bounced back to come back. So uh, uh, that, yeah, that's a team team decision yeah, for sure. sure. No, I got you. I think that's really neat, though, and unique a little bit in, you know, churches that ha are, are leading churches today may, may take a little different approach in the future. And so rather than these are the titles that we have to fit in, and this is what it's got to look like, we're going to, we're going to look at each other's giftings and strengths. And I see that a lot more businesses, right? Where the, 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 the person, it, there's a visionary, um, and, and, but there's somebody else that's really running the day to day. <laughs> and, and do you see that more and more in church world and, and work with, uh, the, pastors and church leaders you're talking to? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've been advocating for that uh, really for 20 plus years. I mentioned I was in a system where I learned it, but uh, especially today, um, the complexities of the American society and American life are, are, are the, the navigating that nuance. There's no way one person sitting at the top of the organization with all the responsible authority is going to be able to understand, speak into all this complexity and intersectionality. You have to function as a team. We have it modeled literally in the Bible, namely the Godhead. If we could personify the Godhead, think about the Father, Son, and Spirit yeah. as three separate entities with three separate sets of gifting, role preferences, et cetera, uh, but functioning together as one and yielding to one another, uh, again, in strength of gifting. So uh, that's what we do. And what does that look like is is when we're sitting around the table discussing an issue, let's just say the issue leans vision. So we're gonna argue, we're gonna fight it out, we're gonna discuss, debate, whatever. We want the best ideas to win, not the person's position to win. Yeah. Uh, and that functions all the way down. So we get all the ideas on the table, we discuss it. But if the issue happens to be vision, it's almost like I get a double vote. Not that we're necessarily voting, but you understand they give me a double portion because everyone recognizes my gifting is vision. If it's people, shepherding, relationships, uh, conflict resolution, our senior pastor, Harry, we, we again, everybody speaks equitably, but we kind of look to Harry, almost like Acts 15, to summarize the argument and say, so here's what I think. And we yield to him to give direction and relational issues, same things with operation or, or, or finance. So it's a, it's a wonderful model. And I write about that in a book called Red Skies, published a year and a half ago, uh, with 100M, 
But team-based management is the technical name for that. And I advocate that. In fact, a friend of mine, Ephraim Smith out in California, literally this morning on Twitter, uh, uh, sent out a picture of the three people that they have in their church that function uh, in this way as well. So you really get the best of it. And what it allows you to do is I don't work on my weaknesses. I staff to my weaknesses. Yeah. And most people, I think, make that mistake in life, in business, in the church. They're always working to improve their weaknesses. But the time it takes for you to pull your weaknesses up to a C plus or B minus means the things you're gifted at, you're cutting short and winging it, Mm -hmm. which means those are B plus. So I'd rather get an A plus in what I'm good at and staff to my weaknesses. And again, all those are some of the advantages of team-based management. Yeah, I remember Andy Stanley talking about that a long time ago too. Like you, you could work on your weaknesses for a long, long time and maybe improve it like two to 3% or just staff for it and do what you do well. And I yeah. really like the idea of the the three people. And then the, the, like, so when it comes to visioning, you get a bigger say, it's not that they can't talk into it or speak into it, but I think that's a genius approach. That's yeah. awesome. And we, we kind of joke that we're the best pastor in America. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. We are the absolute best pastor in America, right? right? right. So. Love it. Yeah, that's great. So yeah. talk me then with like the everyday disciple with the same sort of mentality of working towards your strengths and not necessarily spending all your working hours on your weaknesses. What does that look like for the everyday disciple? It makes sense from a business perspective. Um, but but as we're trying to become, you know, this the mission of this podcast is to challenge people to be the greatest disciples they can be, mm-hmm. uh, believing that each one does have strengths and does have gifts. And so how would you go about that same sort of language? Or do, do you go about that when it comes to just the everyday disciple? And actually, if I take your approach, then maybe you have you always walk with two other people and then your <laughs> yep. one disciple is three. Yeah, well, a cord of three strands is not hey, easy. Hey, come on. Come and, on. Uh, but no, I think uh, in seriousness, just think about the pure individual. They're, they wake up, they're, they, they're just by themselves, mm-hmm. you know, thinking about their day, what they're going to do, whatever. Uh, whether in, in, in marriage, in life, parenting, et cetera, business, or perhaps if you're in ministry, it's always about trying to understand how are you uniquely uh, wired by God, right? The Bible talks about that, our strengths, our gifting, there's many giftings, et cetera. And so obviously none of us have all those giftings. So I think the, you know, uh, and, and at different seasons of different uh, uh, stages of your life, it's not like the gifting changes, but it can become more focused. So the first thing I would suggest is trying to understand who you are and who you're not. Right. And the best way to get out who you are is to determine who you're not. Uh, You know, there's all those gift tests. I've never been a fan for 40 years. I've been in ministry. I've never used gift tests. Why? I don't really like them. I mean, what are you going to do? Take a test. I'm gifted at this and this. Oh, I'm not gifted at giving. So I guess I don't have to give (laughs) any money. You know, I I don't like that. I have three um, things that you would ask yourself. Like, number one, what do you like doing? God wouldn't gift you to do something you hate. Hmm. Right. So what is it that gives you joy? What do you what do you energize about? What gets you up at three in the morning thinking about and excited about? Right. That's probably indication of of, of what you get. Number two, in what have you been affirmed consistently in your life? Do other people they, they go, oh, man, you're such a good this or you're such a good that. And you hear that from different people consistently at different stages of your life. So when you're hearing the same voice of affirmation, if you will, coming from different folks, that's an indication of how you're wired as well. So what do you like? 
In what ways are you being affirmed? And of course, in what have you found effectiveness? I don't necessarily like the word success, but in what ways have you been, uh, uh, what things have you done when you put your hand to the plow, so to speak, it bears fruit. Yeah. Right. And so when you say, what do I like? In what ways have I been affirmed? And when I look at the, in my life, what am I just naturally good at that it actually works? Right. And so then discover that about yourself and then stay in that lane and, and, is, and don't feel guilted or shamed or feel like somehow you've got to improve weakness. No, run to your strengths, improve your strengths, work on your strengths. And then again, where, where it comes to outside of that yourself in your room with your Bible, thinking about all those things, then coupling that and looking to partner and engage with others who are different than you to complement that. And, and of course, then even in discipleship, that's why Jesus sent them out in twos, right? Not just one person. So you can apply all this to the two by two or three by three and forming a little group, a pod, if you will, mm-hmm. by which you can say, how can we advance the name of Jesus? Whether that's at an individual level, some type of structural organizational way, but yeah, playing with two or three others, completing one another uh, in, in, in terms of strengths of gifting, there, there's no better way to live uh, and to do life, if you will, and or to work or serve God. Yeah, it's good. I think those three questions are so awesome. So what do you what do you like? What do you enjoy? What do people affirm or encourage about you? And then where have you seen God show up? Where 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 have, where have you seen effectiveness? Those are really great places to look. I, I you know, I've had many conversations in my head with myself <laughs> about, you know, some of this the same stuff you're talking about, especially like when it comes to spiritual disciplines. And again, I, not that I, I want to be weak in any of them, but I, I'm also like, if I'm really effective at, you know, studying and reading scripture and theology, and I struggle a little bit more with prayer, which I do. Like, should I feel guilty about myself and like always struggling to, with prayer or should I recognize, you know, I've got a unique gift over here on this side. I may struggle a little bit over here, but gosh, it's, it's okay overall. And, and I don't know, I go back and forth because I don't want to struggle with prayer. I right. want to be awesome in that too. So yeah. Can you coach me or yeah, you should th- feel therapy session Here's the for answer. me? Yes, you should feel yeah, yeah. Well, I, Zach, knowing what you've done and seeing what you've done, you're clearly a visionary leader, very much like me. It's interesting you bring up prayer and that struggle because that would be one of my go-tos on that as well. And yes, over the years, I have moved away from trying to force myself to pray because I'm supposed to pray uh-huh. to, to kind of giving lip service to it just to show up in the room just so people can see my presence. Yeah. Um, to to uh, freeing myself of that burden. Now, having said that, let me say, of course, I pray. Um, nothing I do, everything's empowered by the Spirit of God. But having said that, I have also learned to that there are many ways to pray. Okay, and so one is to get on your the way we think, get on your knees, close your eyes, you know that kind of thing. But the conversations I'm having with God throughout the day, the way I exercise patience and persistence. Right. The way I embrace dependence on God and don't try to force stuff. All of that in my book is is a part of what it means for a visionary person to pray. Okay, so I I, I redefined, if you will, for myself, the metric of what does prayer look like in my life, not in someone else's life or Mm -hmm. what I've read or, you know, the great prayer warriors of the past. I just say, what does it mean for me to have a con- ongoing relationship conversation, to, to be humble before the Lord, to be patient and persistent 
in pursuing the passions and the paths that God's put in front of me and offer that, if you will, is all dependence. Uh, one of the things I, I along that definition side is I do for myself and we as a church collectively do for us what we can and we trust God to do for us what we can. That attitude as well is a form of prayer. Now, back to the idea of not feeling like I, in that trajectory of forcing myself and all that. My my wife, Linda, is a is a traditional prayer, prayer warrior, if you will. And my colleague, our senior pastor, Harry Lee, who's uh, we've been together over 20, uh, almost 21 years. He, too, is a great man of prayer. He anchors the prayers of the church. He anchors the staff in prayer. He literally leads prayer summits all over the country. And But Harry is not a visionary like I am. And all the things that we have advanced in the church over 21 years, so much of what's been advanced is taking my time, my energy, my thought. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, but, but Harry's anchoring us in prayer. And it's not that he doesn't provide some measure of vision and I don't provide some measure of prayer. But again, in the partnership, our Hispanic leaders here in our church, they are up every day on Facebook at 6 a.m. praying. They go to the Capitol every Friday morning and they pray. So as a leader of an organization, uh, and now I'm talking about organizationally, I need to make sure, if you will, prayer is happening, that the, the organization is postured for prayer. And that I myself am having an ongoing conversation with God, dependence, et cetera. But that doesn't mean I I, I, I got to pray and I got to do this because I'm not superhuman. I'm not superman. And so, again, over the trajectory of 40 years of my life, uh, the, all this plays to, and, and in my life, my wife anchors us in prayer and I am vision. And there's a great combination, right? It doesn't absolve me from praying. I redefine it. It doesn't involve her, uh, absolve her from speaking in, in a visionary way to our lives and what we yeah. do. But again, it's all complementary. And in America, we think we got to pull ourselves by the bootstraps and be the independent person. That's just not the Eastern way. That's not the way uh, of the Old Testament or even the New Testament. And, and ultimately not the way of God. We need one another. We need complementation, you know, to be complementary. And finding that in our own personal lives, as well as in our work or uh, church life, if you will, is super important to fulfilling the Great Commission collectively versus individually. Mm, that's good. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's yeah, it's helpful. So, how are you wired? How are you? How are you gifted? You know, you know, going further with that prayer thing, I, I felt a little bit of. Oh, I guess anytime you're a pastor and you're preaching or speaking or writing, you feel a little bit like a fraud because it's like the things I'm saying are the person I wish I am. Yeah, I wish I was because I recognized even this year in 2023, I, I led a free uh, 21 days of prayer challenge at prayingchallenge.com. And so what my gifts are is I can galvanize people. I can write and create content to get people excited to do the things that Jesus is calling us to do. And for those 21 days, I was in it, I was doing it. And I, like you said, I still pray, but I'm also like, gosh, there's probably a lot people, a lot more people out there that are way more qualified. Uh, but they made it, maybe don't have the gifts to galvanize and rally people to do it. And so it's, it's just a unique dichotomy of always kind of learning and growing yeah, for as real. a pastor. Yeah, absolutely. So but I think again, that's where just not as an individual and a disciple, a follower of Jesus, realizing, of course, I'm not God's gift to every aspect of life and ministry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What is my unique value proposition, if you will, uh, in business, they call it unique value proposition. What in my own life, how am I uniquely wired? What is my unique contributions to the kingdom of God, to advancing the gospel, to organizational involvement and, and stay in that lane and don't be shamed or guilted in trying to step out of it. 
but again, recognizing all of it's important and ultimately setting your own metrics, not allowing the others to set those metrics for you. Uh, and, and as long as you're good with God, he's good with you. <laughs> I never, I never felt more like what you just described than I, when I made my first prison visit uh, and, and I, I did the first prison visit and, you know, you get shook down so you don't have any contraband or anything. And then you go in and the, that big steel door closes and the, the guy comes out in his orange jumpsuit. And I felt like a complete imposter. I felt so <laughs> uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I remember going back and, and, you know, all joking aside, this this was a 17 year old guy because I was a youth minister for a long time and uh, he had been charged for um, murder. And I I remember leaving there thinking I did not accomplish anything. I feel like a complete fraud. I Anybody else can go to a jail besides me. I'll do anything else. Please never send me back to the prison. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So you are, Mark, a disruptor. In fact, one of the books that you wrote is called Disruption, and I can already kind of hear it with sort of your style and method of how you, how you guys lead your church. So as you look at kind of the landscape of Christianity or the overall state of discipleship in uh, Western culture or North America, like what, what, do you, what do you feel like needs disruption right now? Mm, great question. Yeah, you know, um, that's so... Um, it's so simple and so difficult all at the same time. Mm. But in terms of discipleship and advancing the gospel, et cetera, thinking about it from an individual level, because you'll hear me talk about the individual and the collective, the collective being the church, if you will, local church, ultimately national, uh, the American church in our context. But at the individual level, clearly what, and really in both contexts, individual, collectively, all you have to ask yourself is how's it working for us? Mm. Yeah. Like, how is it working for us? Uh, statistically, more and more people leaving church, organized religion, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this is what the He Gets Us campaign is all about. If people have seen those commercials, um, Barna Research, April to July of 2021, upon which the commercials and the campaign is based, found that uh, 86% of adults in the United States have a favorable view of Jesus. Yeah. Which, which on its surface is like, man, two thumbs up. That's amazing. 86%. Of the U.S. adults in this country it's, uh, have a favorable view of Jesus, but only 11% have a favorable view of Christianity Eesh. and or of the church uh, vicariously. So, you know, it's like the old saying, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> yeah, the, sure. the first thing that needs to be disrupted, I, I would say, is you, you've got to disrupt your thinking by asking a question. And the question is, how is that working for us mm. now? It's not working. Sure, people are getting saved. People are coming to cry. Yes, but in in greater numbers at, at the macro level, um, our our ship is slowly sinking. Now, I don't think it's going to sink because we have a God, and He's not going to let it sink. So, at some point, you know, we're going to get with the program, get on, which is what my work over the last twenty two years is at a structural level, church level, etc. But again, staying at the individual, we have to realize whatever it is we're doing is not working as it should. So then you start breaking it down. Well, what, what are we doing now without going through the what's of that? Let me say, why are we doing it uh, and how are we doing it? Let me say it like that. How we're doing it is based on 20th century metrics. Yeah. So once we ask ourselves the question, how's that working for us? Right. And we realize it's not working. 
Um, I mean, if you were in Detroit and only, you know, two out of 10 of the cars that went through your assembly line worked coming off the, <laughs> you, you would realize I've got to change how I'm building these cars. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's not working. Um, and then you say, why is it not working? I would suggest it's because our forms of discipleship, as well as the structures of our churches, are pitched to 20th century metrics. Mm. So, for example, in the 20th century, evangelism and, and, and a counterpart of that discipleship was all explanation. Mm -hmm. Like the way you brought people to Jesus in the 20th century is you clearly explained the gospel. You brought Billy Graham to your city. He clearly explained the gospel. You tap people on the shoulder at Myrtle Beach excuse me, do you know if you died tonight that you'd go to heaven? Oh, you don't? Can I share with you the four spiritual laws? A simple presentation of the gospel. You explained it. You gave people books written by Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict, more than a carpenter. Later, the case for Christ, Lee Strobel. And all of this, think about it, it's all explanation using words. And I would suggest we're still doing that in our forms of discipleship. We're still trying to intellectually explain and come to understand what it is we believe and how we should live with words and intellect. Okay. But this is a Matthew 516 century. Yeah. And in Matthew 516, Jesus didn't say, let them hear your good words. He said, let them see your good works. Yep. And in the 20th, 21st century, to advance the gospel in an evangelistic way and for character spiritual formation through discipleship, I would suggest is not so much sitting in a room and studying a Bible, studying the Bible, but it's getting out and doing the works of the Bible. Hmm. It's going out and, and, and serving, you know, food distribution and working with immigrants and at an individual level and working with kids who age out of the foster care system, et cetera. It's going and doing. It's a Matthew 5, 16th century. And in the doing, your character is formed. Your understanding is formed, et cetera. Now, I'm all for Bible study. In fact, Jack, we're, I haven't even told you, but we're going to do the 40-day uh, challenge. Come on. Um, we're going to build that into our discipleship models this fall. Okay, so I'm not saying it's this or that, but I'm just saying in the 20th century and still today, nearly 25 years into the 21st century, we've still rooted discipleship in a Bible study mm. with explanation using words appealing to intellect. And we are top heavy on that and low on the demonstration. This entire church was started in 2001 when I left the church using that, that type of model. That's not why I left it. But my point is, those of us who started this work in the inner city, we asked ourselves a question, how many more Bible studies do you need? Hmm. Like, How many more Bible studies do you need to, before you're going to get out there and actually do something with your faith? Uh, I played college baseball, as I mentioned. And then after my college baseball career, you know, I began coaching. I probably learned as much, if not more, about the game of baseball from coaching many years as I did as all the years I played the sport. Okay. And, and, and we, and so I'm just giving you one aspect of yeah. what I said, because I said, how's that working for us? It's not. Why is it not working? Because we're, we've still pitched evangelism and discipleship. It's rooted in 20th century understanding. 
And we've got to shift our understanding, disrupt our understanding of what it means to advance the gospel through good works. Uh, and then also how our character, our spiritual character is formed also by doing those good works uh, and, and, and balance the equation of what we understand intellectually with words with what we can also do. I'll finish with this. In the Eastern mindset of which the Bible was written, um, yeah, well, let me say it like this. In America, you could go to a college class or whatever. I don't know. You could take a class on, on engines. How do engines work? And what, what is required to build an engine? And you, you study, you learn, you take the test, you pass, you get an A. But in the East, that doesn't matter. Like in the East, you've got to actually build an engine. You don't pass, if you will. You don't get credit like you know what you're talking about unless you can actually build an engine. Mm-hmm. Like you put it together bolt by bolt and the thing runs and it works. But in America, if we just know how all that happens, then we go, oh, that person knows how to build an engine. And that's the difference right there. And the disruptive uh, innovation needs to shift from 20th to 21st century understanding in our practice of evangelism, our practice of discipleship versus studying and using words to do it, getting involved with good works. So we got to lead with works in the 21st century if we hope to help people get beyond the bridge of Christ's humanity to his divinity as he gets his campaign is all about. That's really good. And so it just to summarize what I think I heard you say, it's like it's almost like um, the Western view and the 80s view is all about getting it into your head. And if it gets into your head, then hopefully the Holy Spirit will work. Check mark. Okay, go. Uh, but now, if I'm hearing you correctly, it's more about, uh, and I agree, I've been doing youth ministry for 20 years, and it, you almost have to speak to kids nowadays like in ESPN sound bites. And, and it's it, unless you get them out there, exactly, unless you get them out there actively participating, like re-roofing somebody's house and saying, hey, this is what Jesus would do, Uh, going out and serving. I do feel like that has a bigger impact on younger people. I guess my question would be, what is the mix of, you know, apologetics with discipleship? And how do you know if you're in the right zone, so to speak? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, we might say, oh, it's 50-50, but, you know, that's not necessarily true. It's contextual, right? Right. I think any any individual listening to this and or to the degree they're part of a church and or leading a church, I think, again, kind of like the disruptive question, how's that working for us? Mm -hmm. I think what I would do first is how much of my spiritual formation and my my own character development, if you will, is rooted in or in my understanding that I need to go to study. How much? How, how you see what I'm saying? What is the balance of that? What are the opportunities? Because there's a myriad. I would suggest to you a myriad of opportunities that a, a the church of a city, if you will, not just a little church, but you know they got Bible study fellowship. You can go on to. Uh, right now media, you know, and download studies. So you think about how many opportunities, starting within your own local church and even extrapolated beyond, Mm. how many opportunities do you have or are you providing to others to study the Bible? Yeah. Versus how many opportunities are, are there for you to actually engage? Where do you even look? So for instance, all over a city, there's all kinds of good Christian work going on. I'm just, you know, it could be immigration work. It could be food distribution, whatever. But 
but those are typically out in the city somewhere. So think about the individual believer in a local church. How do you even hear about those things? Mm -hmm. How do you even find your way to those things? Um, how can you surface your own interest in that if the local church isn't isn't speaking to you about that telling? Because otherwise it's just random. Somehow you randomly or through self-motivation, you go, man, I want to get involved with food insecurity and figure this out. Mm. And but we so again, I would say ask yourself as an individual and or a church leader, how many, how intentional am I am? How intentional are we being? Um outside of mere study to provide opportunities to serve. And I would suggest when you get to that service side, I'm just throwing out a number. 80% of what you're asking people to do is serve on Sunday mornings. Right, right, right. So, so you start thinking about that. How many opportunities to study the Bible? How many pitches to serve primarily in and for the church community? Uh -huh. Then you get down to this minuscule, I'm making it up, 5%. Right. Of, hey, our church is engaged in this, or we want to call you to action in this way to advance the gospel, to develop your own spiritual formation, to understand and uncover your gifting by helping us once a week to distribute food in this community. I, that the percentage of that, and that's where I'd say again to an individual, consider that. And if it's like scales, we are way overweighted on the, the words and the intellect and the study than we are on the works and the demonstration of the gospel and, and, and to the degree that, and then, and again, again, it's not necessarily 50, 50, but you've got to be intentional to balance the equation. Well, and I've seen that a lot in churches too, where the only act of service and no offense is, you know, can you help with kids ministry? Can you help with parking? Like they're really not actively trying yeah. to meet the needs of the community because they're so concerned about their own needs. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know about you, but I've noticed I'm pretty wealthy community that I'm in right now. It's a lot easier for me to get somebody to really write a check than get them to commit time. Like mm -hmm. it's weird. 20 years ago, it felt like everybody volunteered and it was harder to get donations and mm -hmm. now it feels like it's easier Flipped. to get donations in time yeah well and that's true i mean we're in the inner city and that same stuff is true and this is why again kind of back to where we started the collective is so more so much more powerful than the individual because when a church is intentionally engaging its community in real acts of works and demonstration and service people in the church they, if you will, they get credit and they take credit, even if they're not the ones doing the work because they're collective right. giving their collective support. Yeah. It's, it's allowing us to work with orphans. So let's just say you as an individual aren't work, are serving food, but you're part of a church that makes that a top priority and your contribution, your support, your engagement, you, if you will, you're, you're a part of that because I can't, I don't go to the hospitals. Like people get sick in our church all the time, obviously, I, I don't go. I can't remember the last time I went on what would be traditionally called a hospital visit. Yeah, yeah. But but I, there's all kinds of people in my church that do that, including mm -hmm. staff and 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 deacons, etc. I get credit for that, mm -hmm. if you will. I'm not like looking for credit. You understand what I'm saying? But right. I can't do everything. But I'm a part of a church where people in our collective effort takes that seriously, and there are people going and visiting and and in, you know when you're sick, etc. Right. Um, just like people that don't do what I do get to take credit, if you will. And that's the beauty of the body. Yeah. Right. It's right? Good. Mm -hmm. So, 
I could listen to you forever. I think that's why we're such kindred spirits. I love that the way you put it, you know, this is the Matthew five sixteen generation and mm-hmm. not bad to learn and to grow in our knowledge. We all need to be doing that. Well, there comes a point where our actions are louder than our words. I let's, think let's also this. pastors need to hear this because especially if you're in a part of a small or a medium sized church, you're not part of a mega church. I think a lot of times um, the congregation expects yeah. the pastor to be the jack of all trades. So, yeah. 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 So I want to then forward the conversation, continue the same on the same lines, but uh, you've really been a leader in, I think one of those really important actions for individually and collectively the, the body of Christ, which is uh, helping to, to lead a multi-ethnic community. And now you have conferences called Mosaics. That's all about how to help with that. And so I, I want you to talk to me and to our audience in kind of two ways. Uh, first, you know, I'm a 40 year old white guy living in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I want to become multi-ethnic. How do I do that? And then I want you to talk to me as a pastor. I uh, happen to be, same with Chris, in a denomination that's the second whitest in mm. our uh, nation, which I'm not mm. proud of. Mm-hmm. And so first, let's back up to the individual. Why is why is it important for individuals to, to be in multi-ethnic relationships? And how do we do that in a way that's not forced or feels fake, but is is genuine? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... So let's see, I've probably written 300,000 words on this subject. So let me just see how I can, uh, how I can succinctly say. So as, as an individual, let's, let, let's just start with this. Think about Jesus. What ethnicity was Jesus in heaven? Hmm. Like there was no ethnicity, like he's God. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he intentionally inserted himself into Jewish life. That's called cross-cultural, right? So Christ, who was not a Jew, intentionally became incarnate in Jewish life. Mm. He actually became a Jew. Of course, we can't, you know, do that. But the point is, he he became a Jew, ate like a Jew, so he learned that he intentionally put himself, he left his safe space. He left everything familiar to him. Mm And he intentionally pursued an entirely different people group. Mm. All right. And of course, for the sake of the gospel, it begins with the Jews, it spreads to all people, of course, you know, uh, Matthew 28, et cetera. But if, if for no other reason than to truly be a follower of Christ, which means I want to act like Christ, I want to do like Christ, I want to become more like Christ. If in the most simplest terms, This isn't about political correctness. This isn't about changing demographics. None of that. It is about what Paul prays for the church at Ephesus. I want you to know the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of God's love for you. I pray that for you. And and without going into all the exegesis, just trust me on this. What he's talking about, if, if we could fast forward to a paraphrase that works in our time, what he's basically saying is black people have the depth of God's love white people have the length of God's love. Asian people have the, the what, what am I missing there? Depth, right. length, height of God's love, right? Hispanic people have the width of God's love. And he wants the church to experience the totality the, of God's big love for us by getting into that salad bowl, the tomatoes, the lettuce, the cucumbers, etc., and getting rid of the ranch sauce. <laughs> That's Sung Cha Ra, a friend of mine. He talks about that, right? The, the American church is all fine with getting tomato, lettuce, cucumbers in the same bowl. 
but then they have traditionally and want to continue to pour white ranch sauce over the whole thing. So when you taste a tomato, it tastes like ranch sauce. You taste it. The, the idea is get rid of the sauce. So when we taste a tomato, it, it tastes like a tomato and an onion. And we enjoy the entire flavorful salad. This is exactly what Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. It's rooted in, in the multicolored wisdom of God, Ephesians 2, uh, verses 9, 10. And, and so if for no other reason, because you're a follower of Christ, you should be moving intentionally towards others to gain a measure of cross-cultural, build some cross-cultural relationships, cross-cultural understanding, cross-cultural competence. And, and then if you say, oh, that's nice, okay, that's nice, but let's go to the necessary part. Because the necessary part is, it is true that in a globalized society, our country particularly is becoming uh, more diverse, right? Yeah. So today, one in two young people under 20 are non-white. 43% of millennials are non-white. By 2042, one in two people in America will not be white. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to evangelism discipleship, how are you going to advance the gospel in a credible way, incarnationally, if you will, with diverse others, if you are siloed I don't care, black silo, white silo, Hispanic silo. You see, if you're siloed in, in a sociologically, demographically changing society, it's going to limit your ability to effectively communicate the gospel to all people. You'll be speaking to some people, and, and more specifically, people only look like you, hmm. versus what Paul is does in, in Corinthians when he said, to the Jew, I become a Jew, to the, to the weak, I become weak. What he's talking about is I want to win some from each of those demographics. Because by winning some from the different demographics, the message spreads throughout those demographics. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. So if for no other reason than to be a follower of Christ, to model what he did, and why did he cross cultures to advance the gospel? to be able to effectively communicate God's love for all people, not just some, to disciple, to train leaders. And, and if, if, if for no other reason or personal level, that, that would be some of the biblical argument as to why you as an individual need to intentionally put yourself somewhere. Now, you use the word for sack, and, and I totally get that. But move. I'm saying for anybody listening— Again, this isn't about political correctness, whatever. And it's not about forcing something. It's about becoming intentional. Yeah. Because if you do, in fact, live in a community that's predominantly one way or the other, if you do, in fact, uh, you know, go to a church, let's say, that currently is more pitched to one demographic, uh, not only for yourself, but for your children, because that's not going to perpetuate down the road. Mm -hmm. So you're, that means you're going to have to take some intentional steps to, to build some measure of a multi-ethnic life so that you can have good informed conversations. So you're not being discipled by Fox News or CNN or MSNBC, that you can have critical conversations with people that believe in the same God that you do, et cetera, and rub shoulders and be able to gain some measure of competence and intelligence uh, and, and to promote a spirit of inclusion, to become a peacemaker, an ambassador of Christ. So I, I could go on, but at an individual level, at the most micro minute level, that would be an argument of why you need to do it. And again, to advance the gospel more mission purpose. And then of course, churches, it's the same way. The only thing I'd add there is that the fact is we are all headed to Revelation 7, 9. Yeah. 
every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. That the the arc of the biblical narrative bends towards multi-ethnicity for us collectively. And the way to think about this at a church level is we should be pursuing corporate sanctification. So we're all familiar with sanctification. When we use that word, we typically think of individual sanctification. I get justified in a moment. On, in my life, I'm being sanctified. Of course, some people teach it like an elevator, but it's really more of a roller coaster. But, you know, and you never get there in this life, but you keep pursuing that holiness, knowing that on the other side of this life, you're glorified. You don't become Jesus, but you become the perfect Mark Damas without sin and perfection, et cetera. I'm completed in that. So justification, sanctification, glorification. Well, the same is true for a corporate body. And we know where the end is. We know what glorification looks like for the corporate body. It's Revelation 7, 9. Every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, walking, working, worshiping God together as one for all eternity. That's where we're headed. Now, a church, just like an individual, let's say you are my pastor and you go, hey, how are you doing with God these days, Mark? Oh, I'm pretty good. Well, what are you learning? How are you growing? I'm really not. And you're like, what do you mean? Well, I've been a Christian like 45 years. I'm a pastor in 40. You know, I got a doctorate. You know, you go to seminary, you get demons. I got a demon. Right? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm just going to ride this thing out. No good pastor would accept that answer. Right. As long as you got life, breath in you, there's something more to be growing. And you challenge me. Why do we let churches say, well, we're just a white church. Mm -hmm. We're just a white church in this community. We're just a black church. We're just, you see what I'm saying? You wouldn't accept that from the individual. So why do you accept that from your church? Mm. So, so the goal is you're not, it's not either you are or you're not a biblical church. We're all on a journey just like we are as a, as an individual. So for churches, I encourage them to intentionally pursue corporate sanctification. Where are we currently in an understanding of what the theology, the Bible says about this issue, our, our, our philosophy, like if it's a Methodist church, the Baptist church, Lutheran, you want to bring this vision through a philosophy, not to a philosophy. So what do we understand biblically? What's our philosophy of ministry? What can we do practically? When can we do it realistically to go from number three on a continuum to number four mm -hmm. or from four to five, not three to 10 overnight, or you'll split the church in the name of unity. <laughs> so this so at an individual level, at a corporate level, this is pleasing to God. He modeled it. He expects it. Uh, and and this is how we should be living both individually and corporately and and beyond just what the Bible says, understanding like the men of Issachar, understanding yep. our times and knowing, knowing what is right to do in our times. And certainly in America, given diversity at culture, there's a sociological argument as well, because again, you won't be able to, you cannot keep preaching a message of God's love for all people from segregated pulpits and pews and expect it to be believed. Mm -hmm. That's good. It yeah. looks like we all have our own gods. The Egyptians have their gods. The Phoenicians have their gods. The Hittites have their gods. The blacks have their god. The Mexicans have their gods. The whites. That's exactly how this is playing in Peoria. Mm. And we have to understand the times, know what is right to do to disrupt and course correct. I believe it's the single greatest move of the Holy Spirit in the entire 21st century is moving believers together to walk, work, worship God as one to advance a credible witness of God's love for all people, not just some in a local church as it, on earth, as it is in heaven. And I'll tell you, I'll finish with this. And I, I will not be here because I'm 61 years old. Um, but I would guess by 2050, 60, 2070, maybe that it won't be black and white. It's going to be human and machine. Mm, yeah. And the fact that you're a human being 
is going to bond people together different than right now because it's black the, the division is long race color class and culture but the division in the future is going to be man and machine it's funny and, and this part. too yeah. is how god is forging yeah in these last days the church to be what it's supposed to be for the sake of the gospel wish i would have brought we had a, robot. yeah we had a previous guest in this season um and he wrote a book called robot theology so we geeked mm. out on like <laughs> robots and machines it was incredible how much yeah. is already there and how much is coming um and in a couple episodes we're actually having an author mel gravely wrote a book called dear white friend and i know one of his answers similar to yours is acts of intentionality i heard you say be intentional mm -hmm. and so i'd love to hear from you take it from the individual or, or collective side whatever feels more right for you in this moment what what were the intentional things that you personally did um or that you as a church did um so i hear be intentional i hear acts of intentional from mel in a couple of weeks but but how do i do that what does that mean like practically is there some examples you could share with me yeah for sure it always starts number one with uh curiosity mm. like you got to ask yourself some questions so in my life, uh, without telling the whole story, I was in this amazing church. I told you it went two to 5,000 people, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and I can tell you how amazing this place was. My ministry's thriving, everything. And one day I looked around this church and realized the only people of color in this church were janitors mm. out of 5,000 people. And that began to bother me. So when I felt that, I chased that thought with curiosity. Why is that? Mm -hmm. We're a town of 43, 44% African-Americans, and the only black people in this church are janitors. Something's not right about that. And so I asked myself questions, which ultimately took me to the word of God. And I, I, I became and I stayed curious. Yeah. So that would be the first intentional. Open your eyes, look around at your own life, your own church, et cetera, society, and begin to ask some disruptive questions. So get curious. curious. That's the first thing. Okay. And then in terms of, of taking intentional steps, the second is to embrace dependence on God for this journey. So in other words, I can't go, Hey, here's the 10 steps for you to build a multi-ethnic life. Mm -hmm. No, you've got to, you've got to put posture yourself before God with the curiosity, let the curiosity lead to certain passions and ideas, and then get those passions, get with God in terms of those passions, those ideas, those thoughts, process it with him and pray and posture yourself for dependence and ask God to show you what is right to do mm. for you. I don't mean sin, right or wrong. I mean, what, sure. what for you, for me, it was start this church. Yeah. Okay. But for you, it could be something else. It could be like, I want to call up and get involved in uh, working at the boys club. I don't know. You see, what is it for you that after you've got curious and you position yourself for dependence on God, you seek a new passion in this area and, and you get that and you lock it in with prayer and then you patiently and persistently pursue that passion. Okay. Now, so, so curiosity that leads me to dependence, that leads me to prayerfully posture and position myself before God to hear from God as to what it is you want me to do. Mm -hmm. How should I lead my family? How should I lead my church? I, I mean, I'm saying, do I need to leave one church and go to another? Do I need to get involved in, in the works like we were talking about cross-culturally and serving whatever? Okay, so keep that's, that's all very private, if you will, individual. Now, going from there in terms of taking intentional steps, it's, it's also understanding 
that the goal isn't for you to go be the savior of other people. Sure. Uh The goal is, is not just for other people to help you become something you're not. Like you posture yourself before the Lord, you go and humbly posture yourself in some type of cross-cultural work setting, etc. And you become a listener, a learner, and a contributor, but but from a humble side, mm. not from a prideful side. And see what God does with that. That's good. Plant yourself into unique new situations cross-culturally and 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 allow God like get planted and allow the seed to water and germinate and that will lead to other things. The last thing I'll say about this is most people going back to the salad analogy, when we think about let's say at a church becoming a multi-ethnic church or or what have you, most people and I would suggest this is true in business and everywhere across America, most people think about diversity as the the way they want their diversity is assimilation. They want, like, if I'm an all-white church, hey, we'd love for black people and Hispanics, et cetera, to be part of our church. But what they're not thinking is, or what they are really thinking, whether they know it or not, is as long as they like it the way we do things. Right. Yeah. They want to pour the ranch sauce on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so accommodation is how you build a healthy multi-ethnic life as well as a multi-ethnic church. And that means the majority culture, the people in responsible authority, the structures of the church they bend, they morph, they shift to accommodate diversity, not assimilate diversity. And if you play that at an individual level, again, I don't want to go into a, a, a diverse environment and try to make them like me. Mm-hmm. I want to go into that environment and see how I can add and add something to that. And in the same time, I'll, I'll there'll be things transforming me as well. So Moving away from assimilation to accommodation is another structural or organizational step of intentionality, you know. And then again, as we've already talked about, develop cross-cultural relationships, pursue that cultural intelligence, promote a spirit of inclusion wherever you are, a biblical argument. The church is is an embassy. Think about it like an embassy. And we are the ambassadors. And ambassadors don't get to say whatever they want. They speak on behalf of the king or the president. So, and when people set foot on an embassy, you're technically in that land. We are to be a reflection of Revelation 7, 9 collectively as a church. And when people step onto our land, they're in heaven. And we, the ambassadors, are to be ministers of reconciliation. Matthew 5, 9, right? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be identified with the Son of God. It's the only beatitude that you don't get something for what you do. You are identified with someone because of what you do. Uh-huh. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be identified as a, there's nothing closer that we can do to be identified with Jesus than uh-huh. be his ministers of reconciliation, ambassador of Christ, advancing peace among diverse people. groups. Cool. We aren't just peacekeepers. We're peacemakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's awesome. I, I love ranch but i'm thinking peppercorn ranch is even better than ranch i don't know if that's right or not no it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. poured um, over everything but, exactly. but what i think is there's so many cool unique different expressions of jesus through the local church and back to that revelation 7 i think we can all learn from one another so it's not that our model is the best but no we can learn from one another add value to one another and 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 see chris you had an interesting <laughs> review um, i did of so, your church. Yeah. And, so and I think it's interesting. I think it's fair. But yeah, interesting. it's a fair review. So I was part of the same church for the last 20 years. And uh, about six weeks ago, I planted uh, a new church 
specifically for people who were unconnected, like 20 and 30 somethings. And, but this was um, the church that I came from and was at for 20 years is absolutely predominantly white in a suburb of Orlando, very wealthy. And I would say probably 80% Caucasian, 15% uh, uh, Hispanic, and uh, like literally one or two African-Americans. Yeah. Um, so we got this review and right next to our beautiful church, there's this uh, tire shop. And this gentleman, African-American, goes to the tire shop and he's a Christian. He said, oh, man, there's a really cool looking church next door while my tire's getting fixed. I'll go over and go to worship, which is fantastic. So he left this review three weeks ago. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, the church looked phenomenal. Uh, I mean, it was my first time in a Lutheran church and it was different. The pastor spoke very well, and it was an engaging message, meaning that you had the option of sending in a response, which was the first time I ever saw that. It was good. But glory to God, heaven is not going to look anything like this place because I was literally the only black person in there. Laughing tears emoji. Mm. I thought it was hilarious. And I got to say this. The people were very, very friendly. Um, and I didn't feel any spirit of racism or anything like that. It's just that the praise and worship seemed a little <laughs> subtle, but overall, it was a good experience. And so we responded to that and said, thank you so much yeah. for leaving this review. And it was it was great. But it, it certainly was an eye opener. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's I fair. Love yeah. Well, go ahead. I mean, I love the, the guy's spirit. And you can tell, obviously, he's a Christ follower and his spirit is not the as, as so much rage and angst in our right. culture. Obviously, he's not pointing the finger, but he but his spirit is right. And then as a church organizationally, you as a lead pastor, the intentionality on that is not just see it. But, OK, what does that mean for us? Like, you know, how do we lean into this? Because accommodation would be to hear his comment and then to be able to move the organization so that, you know, a year, two, three years, another person doing that comes in and they don't make that comment because they, the, the church is more a reflection of the community and diversity yeah. and the kingdom of heaven. Um, but a lot of people might hear that and not do anything with it. And that's where things stall. So my senior pastor responded like the day after he said this. I thought it was great. Hey, man, thank you so much for visiting with us yesterday. It was so great to have you. Also, I love I really love the spirit of your review. It was low key hilarious, <laughs> but I think it was pretty accurate because uh, it's an accurate review of our strengths and weaknesses. We would really love to have you back any day. And please, like, send me a private message. Let's have lunch sometime. I'd love to get awesome. to know you a little bit better. Yeah, it's good. So. That's so good. That's that intentionality, the curiosity. Let's go to lunch. Help me understand more of what you were seeing and feeling. And if if that was different the next time you came, what would be different about that? Are you willing to help us become like that? Right. You see what I'm saying? And then that that's again, that's that continuum, right? Just mm -hmm. inching your way forward from season to season uh, of improvement. So anyway, it's a beautiful story. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's something we can all do like that. That's a real recent example. But right. like if we have eyes open with opportunity, we can take things like that and, and do exactly the things you're telling us, Mark, mm -hmm. start with curiosity, um, get involved in relationship and conversation, and then go from there. Um, mm -hmm. so that's cool. I wish we could talk more. We got to keep moving. So we ask every guest this final question. If you could challenge this is ultimately a podcast to challenge people wherever they are to be a greater disciple of Jesus. And so if you could issue a challenge to our audience to do one thing practically this week, what would you challenge them to do? Oh my gosh. Well, 
uh, people that know me know that I'm going to respond to this question with uh, pointing people to biblical theology, disrupting their thinking, mm-hmm. and I'm going to I'm going to set off some alarms right here. Oh. And if you have a listener that takes up this challenge and and does not get it, uh, you know, please, they can contact me. I'll be more than happy to walk them through it on the phone or point them to a book that I've already written the stuff in. <laughs> but here's the challenge. I want you to go uh, to the Bible, specifically to the book of Romans, and ask yourself this and go to Romans chapter 16, verses 25 through 27. And ask yourself, why? Um, what does Paul mean when he says, may God establish you according to my gospel? Mm. He says, my gospel. Mm. I'm going to give you a hint. His gospel is not the capital G salvific gospel, which basically means there's two gospels in the book of Romans. What was he talking about? A hint. If you need help, go to Colossians 1 and and Ephesians 3 and look up the mystery of Christ. Romans 16, Colossians 1, Ephesians 3. Go on a deep dive. What does it mean? What did Paul mean when he talked about his gospel? What the heck is this my gospel stuff? What if you guys brought me on today and I go, hey, I'm here to preach my gospel? Everybody (laughs) would panic. You'd freak out. (laughs) Who are you, Mark? You don't have a gospel. That's right. That's exactly what Paul does. The entire book of Romans is not meant to explain what I call the capital G or salvific gospel. It was written to explain Paul's gospel. Go on a deep dive and try to figure that out. And a little corollary on that, ask yourself this question, what what is 1 Corinthians 13 all about? Mm. And again, my little hint, it has absolutely nothing to do with a man loving his wife. There you Can go. Can you apply it that way? Sure. <laughs> yeah. And a wife, sure. But is that why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13? Mm. Go out on those two fronts, go because that, the, some of that is the beginning of disruption to help unpack. To, to, I don't like the word deconstruct, I think we're always constructing something, mm-hmm. but to build on what you've been taught to this date. It's not that what you've been taught is wrong, it's been, but what we've been taught is incomplete. It's good. And taking a look at those passages will begin to give you a hunger to go deeper in your understanding of the New Testament than you probably do. And ultimately where that leads is to Galatians 3.28. Jews are not better than Gentiles. The rich are not better than the poor. Men are not better than women. There is equity in the kingdom of God. At the foot of the cross, everyone is equal. And we are to lean into that as individuals and collectively as churches to build healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse, culturally intelligent, socially just, lives and communities of faith to advance a credible gospel in an increasingly diverse society. It's beautiful, man. All right. That's the challenge disciples. If you take it on this week, hashtag red letter disciple. And if you got questions along the way, let us know. We'd love to provide some support and help there. Uh, But yeah, it sounds like you guys are going on a deep dive through some important theological chapters in the Bible this, this week to see what is really all behind this. So I love that. All right. I'm going to turn it over to Chris. Mm -hmm. I'm always nervous to do this. Hey, uh, Mark, thank you so much. We've learned a lot uh, from you today. And uh, the last segment of the show is always handed off to me. Uh, we have a, 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 
a really hardworking staff that develops a personalized <laughs> game show yeah, right. for every contestant. Oh, and, my gosh. And we know that uh, you've lived the last 30 years in Arkansas. We know that Zach Zender was born in mm -hmm. Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> yeah. He was a Razorback fan for a long time. Uh, so I wanted to see, and I don't know if this is the correct usage of the word, who's mar more Arkansonian? Ah, okay. Hey, oh, oh, so we're gonna take a little quiz here. I That's see. Right. That's right. And it's so oh, I love that. Be, you know, this is gonna be the first heads up challenge oh, wow. of the season. Oh, so okay. uh oh, that's yeah. great. Well, we're, Chris, before hey, yeah. before you get to that, I'm gonna ask you a question. Go for it. I know it all. Did you know that Arkansas is mentioned in the Bible? No, it's the only state mentioned in the entire Bible. Tell me. I've not and Noah Noah looked out of the Arkansas. Let's see. Let's go. Be. All right. All right. You got me there. All, all, right, right. all right, Cam, producer Cam, can you help me with this? Uh, you'll have to keep track of score. I anticipate this is going to be a f probably the fastest 60 seconds in uh, Christian game show history. I'll put 60 seconds so, on the clock. Hang on. You're testing my Arkansas knowledge when yeah. I lived there from <laughs> to one year Look old. At Dude, you're already trying to buffer. Right, your, you're so competitive, and you're already trying to buffer <laughs> excuses for your inevitable loss. All right. Uh, one minute on the clock. I will give you some clues. First person to shout out the answer gets the point. Uh, Cam is also uh, an, a certified accountant, so we can trust his answers. All right. On your right. marks, get set, go. This was the uh, creator of Walmart from Arkansas. Sam Walton. That's it. One point. Uh, the Considered the greatest college football coach of all time. Bear Bryant. That's it. Uh, let's see here. We've got, um, oh gosh, uh, this PGA golfer is known for his disc driving distance. John Daly. Yes, that is amazing. Wow. Okay. He was, uh, he's an actor. He was that, that guy. Um, I like mustard. Go ahead, Cam. Jump in. Sling blade. Sling Blade. He was in Sling Billy Blade. Billy Bob Thornton. Point for Cam. Oh, oh come on, Cam. How do you do it? I know he was playing. He's too. playing. <laughs> All right. That was amazing. Uh, President of the United States. Bill Clinton. Uh, that goes to right over there. Oh. Uh, all right. This guy is a novelist, lawyer. Um, oh, John Grisham. Yes. John Grisham. Uh, he played with Michael Jordan. Pippen. Scotty uh, Pippen. Oh, all right. What was the score, Cam? I got Pippen. Final score. Oh, you got Pippen. He did get Pippen. One point for Cam. Yeah. Two points for Zach and four points for Mark. Yay. Way makes more Arkansodian. That, that uh, there's just, there's a lot of good Arkansas. My right, goodness. Right. John Daly. I didn't well, know he was, here was the next I read so many of Grisham's things. I here was the next one. Uh, this was tough to describe, but he's known as one of the greatest American country singer songwriters of oh, all time. Gosh. Boom! There you go. I Amazing. Yeah. Dude. He knows his Arkansas. There yeah, you go. You really Arkansas. You really do. <laughs> yeah. Mark, this has been so fun, and we've covered so much ground now. Yeah, really um, but hey, man, if people want to connect with you and all the things you're doing, where can they find you these days? Yeah, easiest way. I'm, I'm real accessible. The website, mosaics.info. M like Mary. O, S like Sam. A, I, X dot info. Uh, you can go there, click a button, uh, get some time with me. I'd love to chat, talk to you about anything you're thinking about to advance your own life and or the church that you're a part of for the sake of the gospel. 
Cool. Mm-hmm. And pastors, church leaders, I just want to let you know, uh, Mark leads a conference called Mosaics and they're, uh, they're going regional. And so there's several regional. I know I'll be seeing you this October, I believe in yeah. Denver. Denver. Uh, that's but- right. Pastors and church leaders, like, go to one of these conferences. They're they're awesome. If you want to really learn Wait, more, you're going deep. to Denver in November, October, October. 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 Not, will not you, you will you be October. able to ski out there? Then? Not yet, not yet. Oh, not okay. yet. Right. So it'll, it'll it'll still be good. But All right. uh, but seriously, pastors, church leaders, check it out. Mosaics, uh, awesome conferences to go deeper. Mark, hey, thanks again, man, for uh, the way you're impacting the kingdom of God. Uh, yeah, I could talk with you forever and and just be nodding in agreement but yeah. first actually go do stuff now <laughs> right so. right yeah, right yeah blessings brother yeah, yeah you too so likewise appreciate you guys all you're doing and thanks for having me today thank you, you. Buddy. well i could have kept talking with mark forever i think there's such kindred spirits between what we're doing here at the podcast and what he's doing and so i hope you were blessed by today's episode if you want to connect with mark whether it's any of his books or see his church or to check out his conferences. Like, he's got a lot going on. You can do that. Uh, We put all the nice links, very beautifully organized, at redletterpodcast.com in our show notes for today's episode. It's also at the show notes. You can grab that free PDF, the five-step, easily doable, super simple guide to growing your small groups. I even messed up the order of what it was called. It's you know, don't worry about the order. What I'm saying is it's super simple, easily doable. You can grow your small groups. We've helped more than a thousand churches do that. And we want to give that resource to you. So you can see that in the show notes as well. Next week, our guest is Sasha Bershide. She's here in Omaha, going to be joining us in studio. And what a powerful story from Sasha. Uh, here is a woman that a little less than a decade ago was struggling with alcoholism and not only has been nine years sober now, but a few years ago started an amazing nonprofit called Project Intentional, which started just helping single moms in the holiday season and has now grown into something so much more. We're going to have an awesome conversation. You won't want to miss it. And you won't miss it if you subscribe or follow on whatever platform you are watching or listening to. So that only takes like a second or two to do that. And that's really nice because then all of a sudden, like it kind of organizes things. And then every Tuesday when new episodes drop, like Red Letter Disciple right there, right at the top. You got it. It's there. So, hey, do that if you haven't already. And if you're already there, why don't you go ahead and give us five-star ratings and reviews if this is meaningful to you so we can keep doing things like this. All right, that's it. God bless you. Have a great day. And we'll see you back next week for a new episode of Red Letter Disciple. A Huda Media Production.